Hey, it's Isaiah, and you're listening to episode four of I Guess We'll Do It That Way. As you probably know by now, this is a show where I call my friend John to talk about life, pop culture, and my progress as I direct my first feature film. It's presented by Mama Bear Studios. Mama Bear's mission is to create entertaining works of art that explore humanity. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. All right, here's episode four. John, can you hear me? I can, just fine. Can you hear this? Guess what, get, John, I want you to guess what my eyes behold at this very second. Well, I know you pretty well, so on your wall there is a Kraftwerk poster that you're staring at. <laughs> Kraftwerk. No? Wrong? Wrong. Uh, Robot rock? I am staring at some crashing waves and seagrass blowing on the dunes and seagulls flying. No. Are there dunes in California? I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Holy mackerel, I was just there. Oh, I know. I have a really nice little perch. I stole my parents' bedroom because they have a nice little picture window over the beach. And uh, I'm just sitting here talking into my microphone. I'll record a little beach noise for you. Please do. I'll send it over. Please do. What's uh what's new? What's what's happening, Johnny? So Bear? many things happened. I came back to my house yesterday, had to I have sort of an old house, you know, it's about a hundred years old or so mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's got all kinds of secrets and little little spots that need to be checked, you know. Trap doors. Trap doors, leaky pipes, that kind of Ratness. stuff. Rats galore, cats, all sorts of things. King rats. Lots of king rats. I haven't seen a king rat yet, but I'm crossing my fingers. Okay. So I came home, I did a quick once over everything and um I went and picked up my cat, our little ex-producer. She mm-hmm. stayed with various family family members for the last three weeks. Mm. And she's back home, but she took her toll on the house houses that she visited. Oh. Apparently, she spread a ringworm to everybody. Oh. My friend who watched him texted me, the whole fam got ringworm. Mm. And he named the cat in my absence. And the name is? He named her Torment. <laughs> You sticking with that one? Absolutely not. The cat goes back to being totally nameless and totally aimless. Right now, she's upstairs and jobless. Je- je- definitely not hiring this cat. She's got ring. Every time I look Did at, did you her, wipe off the soundboard? I, I sterilized everything. She got okay, a cat bath and some anti-ringworm shampoo. I'll Amazon Prime you some Lysol spray. Please do. I got my fingers crossed. I don't get ringworm. Interestingly enough, ringworm has nothing to do with worms. Mm. It's a fungal infection. Why do they call it ringworm? Because it makes a ring on your arm or wherever. Yeah, but why not ring fungus, Uh, ring mushroom? Because people are stupid. Mm. You know, that name probably came up 100 years ago when they thought that any... They thought it was like a little worm just kind of under the layer of the skin and in the shape of a ring. Bingo. Those idiots. So, what's going on in movie land? Well, you're not in movie land, but what's going on with your movie? Lots of stuff, dude. I... I feel I feel so good about it right now, actually. I am obviously sort of on vacation, but I'm getting a little work done. And I just, minutes before we got on this recording session, I got off the phone with our casting director. Ooh, round of applause. Who, yeah, casting director. She's great. Um, and I actually talked to her about the podcast she's super excited about. It. She actually wants to come on at some point. So we're going to start looking at dates to potentially have her come and sort of talk about what casting directors actually do because i 
suck at talking about what they do because it's not what I do. I'm going to grill her. I've got a hundred questions. Good. She'll be ready. Her name is Rebecca Dealey. She works at a company called Christie Street Casting up in New York. Most recently, she did Hereditary. She worked on Jackie. She's done a bunch of stuff. She's really awesome. How old is she? I don't know how old she is. I'm guessing early 30s. That's so rude to ask. I was just going to see, you know, what kind of social graces you have here you never tell a lady's age you never well tell. i don't know how old she, she 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 probably asks other people their age all the time i think the social grace is that you never ask a woman's age well so i'm in the I'm, wrong here america i'm sorry i i don't know if i can if i can't ask her her age i'm not sure if we can work together so i might just have to let her go and find a guy so that i can ask him his age. yeah equal rights equal this baby come on yeah get him out of here Forget about it. You know, the, I love that voice. It's it's your Forget best one. <laughs> no, it's good, dude. We this week we are gonna go out to some very very exciting possible leads for Rufus. That's kind of the first role we're tackling is Rufus. He's the lead, the lead. There are several very important leads, but he's kind of the lead. If there's only one behind the scenes question, mm-hmm. because it's her job to find actors mm-hmm. does she give you names before you guys d- agree to work together um no not really we kind of agreed that we wanted to work on the pro that you know that she was excited about the project and wanted to work on it and then the next step is yeah we sort of decide let's do this and the the, the next thing we did we sort of had a creative call and i sort of described what i was thinking and then i actually made a list of a bunch of people that i've kind of been tracking and sent that to her you know it it had you know maybe five or six roles sort of covered and she then took it and based on that and what my vision was and that included a a huge range of people for each role but not a long list maybe six to ten people tops for each one and she then took that and expanded it and sent me spreadsheets that have a headshot and a name and lots of people maybe 45 people for each role oh wow and like a lot there's a lot maybe 30 something in one of them but i mean a lot of people and because she just has a great read on who's out there right and then i make notes and i'm like uh not this person you know because i'll go on their imdb and i'll watch little clips and i'm like not this person not this person maybe this person and i narrow that list down maybe to 10 to 15 people that i think are worth at least looking at more of their stuff. But then, so that I don't have to then go rent a bazillion movies and just find the scene they're in, a lot of these people have, once you contact their agents and get their availabilities, that basically is they're booked until, they're hard booked until January. And then after that, they're open. So maybe they would consider it. Let's, you know, it's kind of a very, very general, not specifically related to this project, but more like technically they're available, you know, starting this time. Yeah, and as we learned last time, the casting director position is so much more than just picking names out of a hat and putting them on yeah. the, the page here. This person's uh, basically solving a huge puzzle to see who they can get in this movie at the same time. Yeah, and- she's trying to help me think through, like, who has, you know, we talked about chemistry, but she's also thinking about, is this person available and are they, you know, this is the kind of person that we need to kind of build the movie around. And these are the kind of people who are going to like the possibility of working with this person and they're going to make a good team. So if we can get that first person, that's going to make it more attractive to these other people. And it really is kind of this, like, it really is a puzzle because once you sort of lock in around X actor that potentially, you know, this far out, we're starting early 
on purpose, but you know, this far out that that can change and something bigger comes up and the person you were hoping for might have to not be able to do it. When you're hiring a casting director, all you really need to do is hand them a Rubik's cube and see how fast they can solve. Yeah. But one of those like eight by eight Rubik's cubes, put a timer on Mm -hmm. yell, yell into a bullhorn at them. And then when they don't get it, you're fired. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Out of my sight. So after the casting director, after you get your cast set, who else do you have to hire? Yeah, so I'm in the process simultaneously of talking to kind of, and, and this is what we kind of promised everybody last episode, was was some chat about producers. And that's also kind of the next thing I'm working on, is getting a producer. Because I need, I need somebody, I need a partner. I need a creative producing partner. I thought you, you are a producer. You need a co-producer. I need a co-producer who can be the other half of me because what's happened in the past and I'm I'm glad I learned this lesson on short films for example but when I'm a producer when I'm the producer and the director again the title of the show keeps coming up I guess we'll go, we'll do it that way everything in a movie is about finding the right compromises and if you are the person weighing both of your options like, we don't have enough time to do both of these things. Which one do you want to do? Kind of like the, the legal system. You almost have to have two people with competing interests who are willing to have it out a little bit sometimes to figure out what the sort of synthesis between those two things is. I'm just picturing uh, Stanley Kubrick yelling at that woman, Shelley, what's-her-face, to, mm. to do that scene where she's crying and freaking out about 10,000 oh. times, you know? In The Shining Doc. Yeah, it's incredible. We'll we'll link to it. Yeah, Shelley Duvall isn't that her name? Yes, no yep. relation to Robert Duvall. Anyway, this is actually a perfect time to introduce a new little thing we're going to be doing. Starting later this week, we are going to release uh, an episode where we talk about an old movie. I'm always doing research, watching old stuff, and it feels like it could be kind of fun to to sort of talk about some older stuff that that people may not already know about. This week. We're going to be talking about a little film called Ace in the Hole by a guy named Billy Wilder, director of classics like The Apartment, Double Indemnity, Some Like It Hot, and Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is a just an absolutely harrowing movie. It's so ahead of its time. Um, it's incredible. Everybody it, should go watch it. You know it. my theory Bye. on Sunset Boulevard, though? Tell me. My theory on Sunset Boulevard is it's the prequel to... No, I'm sorry. It's the sequel to Singing in the Rain. Really? Because Singing in the Rain, which is obviously not directed by Billy Wilder, is about a fading silent movie star. Yes. And Sunset Boulevard is about a faded silent movie star who has completely lost her shit. What's the name of the woman that plays the uh, the actress? I don't actually know. Should we look it up? You should look it up. But her actual story is that she was a faded actress who they convinced... Wilder convinced her to come. It's Gloria something, isn't it? I think you're right. She I'm was it up. she was uh, faded in the biz, and Wilder somehow convinced her to do this part, even though it was sort of an obvious take on her actual life at the time. Mm. Not quite. That's you know, insane. It's, it's sensationalized. It's kind of like uh, it's a little bit like uh, Inuritu and uh, Michael Keaton and Birdman. Yes, exactly. Wow, dude. Her name is Gloria Swanson. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But bingo. Her yeah, her main shot on IMDb is clearly an early twentieth century silent movie. 
The movie, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the movie, she's incredible. She's, I mean, when she comes down those stairs at the end of the movie, oh my gosh, it's terrifying. Also, coined the very popular phrase now, "I'm ready for my close-up." Mm. Terrifying movie, man. Everybody should go watch That's it. That's deep. Right after you watch 1951's Ace in the Hole, which we'll discuss next week. Speaking of watching some of these great movies, today's show is brought to you by Filmstruck. Not because they're actually sponsoring us, but because it's actually a damn good product that you should sign up for. Stream your favorite classic and art house films or explore new genres with a library that's constantly curated for the constantly discerning. Filmstruck's library is updated each week with titles from world's greatest independent collections. Only Filmstruck has all the greats. Filmstruck is like a highly curated Netflix. With old stuff. Old stuff. A lot of old stuff. stuff. Yeah. New stuff, too. New stuff, yeah. old stuff, great stuff. Filmstruck. It's top notch. I feel like you're extorting money from them with this. Are you... Are you pre-doing an ad, a pre-sponsorship ad. I'm just sponsoring them because I think it's great and everyone should sign up for it. And I'm not going to ask them for money. I will. Give us money, Filmstruck. Filmstruck. Do they have money? You know is all your dirt. Do they have money? I mean, is this a viable business Do they have model? sponsoring money? Yeah. I've heard them sponsor a couple podcasts, I think. Really? Yeah, but I don't know how much. I mean, they must have some money if they're licensing all these movies. How do they get the rights to these films? Do they? Is there a market for this? Well, I assume that a lot of it is done through the Criterion Collection, which is a you know you know what the Criterion Collection is. It's it, they they figure out a lot of the licensing, and I'm assuming that when the Criterion Collection does things, they must have included a certain amount of streaming in the deals that they had and i think probably a lot of those criterion collection movies they do big blanket deals with whoever owns a big library and so in some cases that may be like paramount licensing and there's some department of paramount that just handles the licensing of old movies and they go in and they're like we want these 50 movies for two years there has to be somebody right now sitting on just millions and millions of dollars worth of jurassic park dvds yeah that's a I mean, Jurassic Park VHSs, yeah. I should say. You know what's crazy though? Jurassic Park DVDs are probably selling all right. It's a great movie. It's a great movie, and there's new ones coming out, and parents are probably like, eh, yeah, let's watch the old one with the kiddos. I, and then they go buy it and scare the shit out of them. I went to a uh, Christian school, and when I was in sixth grade, me and a very, very good friend, a lifelong friend, were in the bathroom. And there were a few other kids in there, and he opened one of the stalls. And he turned to all the other boys in the bathroom and said, that's one big pile of shit. <laughs> and he did it deadpan, and it cracked all of us up and spent, I think, I don't know, at least a day in detention for it. Somebody ratted him out. Just for saying shit? Yeah, man. As a Christian school, you can't that's say not shit. not even a cuss word. You can't say shit like that. I guess you're right. I did. And I got in trouble. One time I one time I said a bunch of cuss words while sitting and waiting to go into the principal's office for something else I had done wrong. Sure. And I was overheard. And uh, they said, we're calling your parents because you said some bad stuff. And we're just going to let them know. Your dad used to answer the phone back then, though, with, who the hell is this? Yeah. And they were like, um, no one. <laughs> Bye. No, that what, what really happened, my dad didn't answer the phone. What really happened is I went home. And deleted the message from the voicemail on the on the physical answering machine, so they never got it. Okay. Yes. Then the next day, I went to baseball practice. Well, I no no no. I couldn't go to baseball practice. That was my punishment. They said you're not allowed to go to baseball practice. This is my freshman year. 
They said, you're not, not allowed to go to baseball practice. That's your punishment because you have to do a detention. But detention ended earlier than baseball practice. So my dad had to come pick me up, and I like made up some excuse for why my dad had to pick me up early. I was like, Dad, I need you to pick me up like an hour earlier than you usually do. And he's like, why? I was just like, I don't know. You know, Such I a solid lie. That is a solid lie right there. It was a, oh, I'm a good lie. <laughs> <laughs> did he buy it though he bought it right dad's buy that well he bought it he bought it enough because he didn't have any reason to be suspicious sure. and then the the guy the assistant principal who was kind of in charge of disciplinary stuff knew my dad a little bit because i was always in trouble and um came up to the car window and very friendly was like he's like yeah sorry isaiah couldn't uh sorry you had to change your plans you know he couldn't go to baseball practice and my dad was like what he's like oh you didn't get our message and my dad was like what message he's like I'll let you two talk about this. <laughs> the whole thing ended up being, dude, we didn't care that much that you got in trouble for saying some cuss words, but you can't lie to us like that. It was it was pretty bad. I felt like a big time idiot because I wasn't even going to be punished. Lesson learned? Uh, yeah. Cuss yeah, it up. So. Don't lie to mom and dad. Yeah, exactly. We all did so many neurotic things as kids regarding mm-hmm. trouble. I, I remember I went to a Christian school, a religious school, and I remember if promising god that i would build a church in africa if uh if somehow i would be spared from being suspended for punching somebody things like that you know oh, no. Oh, no. i never did get suspended how big is your debt John? well let's just say yeah I, i'll ne- this is a debt i can never pay. a couple lifetimes in africa po- very possibly but so far i'm getting away with it scot-free baby oh yeah no suspension you really pulled no one church. over on him oh i got them all baby I got them all. But we I remember doing stuff like that constantly, bargaining, making mm-hmm. deals in my head. Yeah, I, I remember one time in third grade, I was having a, a, a bowling party. A bowling party? For my party. birthday. Wow. Yeah, a bunch of us were going bowling. In it wasn't third grade? Crazy. That seems pretty young. Maybe it was fourth grade. I don't know. I was thinking more like 45. That's when you have a bowling party. <laughs> you live in the valley. You've got a friend named Donnie and another friend named Walter. Bingo. And you have a bowling birthday party. Movie reference, um, ladies and, someone, and gentlemen. And then someone steals your rug. But no, I was having a bowling party, however old I was. And I remember sitting in my room praying to God, God, if you're going to come back and end the earth, you know, come, come back and, and Armageddon, et cetera, et cetera, can you at least do it after my bowling party? I was convinced that it was going to happen before my bowling party, which was like the next day. You really? What made you think that? I, I don't know. I was convinced. I was like, "What if? What if I don't get to have this bowling party?" You were really hyped about this bowling party, huh? I was pumped about it. I don't remember the bowling party. I remember praying that it would happen. It would have been the most epic end to a birthday if right after you bowled a strike and everybody lifts you onto their shoulders, the roof of the bowling alley disappears and jesus himself comes down to bring you all up to heaven oh and it's only the people who got invited to the bowling party it's just you and six third graders <laughs> well done my good and faithful servants <laughs> we, we get up there and like the apostle paul isn't there he's like oh he wasn't uh wasn't at your birthday party it turns out what they say is true that thunder really is just god bowling <laughs> No one has ever said that in the history of the world. My son told me the other day that rain is God urinating. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. All right. Uh, We should get back to producers. Otherwise, our listeners are definitely going to tune out. Anyway, a typical producer's responsibilities can kind of include anything ranging from raising the money, setting up the company, 
overseeing the production, they're kind of legally responsible for the production. And so if someone gets hurt, you know, it's kind of their responsibility to some extent. If the movie loses money or doesn't sell, you know, they're kind of the ones, they're sort of the CEO of the project in a way, along with the director. But the the director is kind of the creative CEO, if you will. And the producer is sort of the the person who's managing the entire enterprise. And sometimes that person is a couple people, you know? And so in my case, I'm producing a lot of the movie right now by getting casting directors and going to talent and raising the money and figuring out what location we're going to use and figuring out the budget, all that kind of stuff. Those are all things that a producer does. So I will stay onto the project as a producer. But during production and other things, that's where I'm really going to want to lean on somebody and say, like, I'm going to give you these responsibilities and you're my partner now and I need to know that I can count on you. One thing that I really look for in a good producer, because I've worked with good ones and bad ones, is I don't like no. No is never a useful answer. Do we have time to do another version of this? Do we have time to cover this from one more angle or do we have time to like get more takes it's usually about time or do we have money like can we afford more extras to make this space feel more full or no exactly no is unhelpful but what's helpful is here are your options the answer is without making changes no but if we cut this we have more money to hire more extras but which is more important to you or if we cut this other thing we can get the actors out by midnight But if we get them out at one, we can do that, but it's going to cost you X amount in overtime, and then we have to start an hour late tomorrow, and now it's your your job to decide which is more important to you. So again, it sounds like a problem solver. A problem solver who likes collaboratively solving problems as opposed to sort of being the hero all the time. I think being a producer, you know, frankly, because I've been on that side of the table as often as I've been a director, you know, being a producer is definitely... It's an important job, but it can be sometimes very thankless because everybody just assumes that the director just snaps their fingers and this whole vision comes to life. But um, the but but so much of movies are are compromise and and kind of coming up with the next best thing, and that's what a really great producer does is they never just sort of stonewall. They say, "All right, I know that how important this is to you, so I moved some stuff around, and I did my best to like not." ruin sort of the vision while also not pushing us a bazillion dollars over budget sure does that make any sense absolutely i feel like you would want to though hire a guy who was a producer who could still who calls some of the shots but ultimately that you as a producer and director can trump yeah i think i probably in most cases i would we would defer probably to my choices but there has to be a certain amount of trust where this person, I need to know that my choices are probably going to be the ones we go with, but that ultimately I can also trust them that if it really is a point where I'm wrong, that they're going to tell me you're wrong, we have to move on, or there just isn't time. Anyway, speaking of there being no time, I think it's time to do a little mailbag. Oh, baby, hit See me. See what the fans are saying. Oh. The, the just absolutely overflowing mailbag. All right, I'm pulling it up. Beep, boop, boop. I can hear your Commodore 64 warming mm-hmm. up right now. We have, we have one message. We have one question. A question, just one this week. Uh, you know, feel free to write in, all of you. How um, would you, someone send us mail in the first place? You can add us. You can tweet at us. At That Way Pod. 
Very I'm, simple. I'm doing it right now. Good. Tweet at us, John. We need some user interaction. We can also, you can um, go to our website. There's lots of methods there at thatway.fm. And you can email directly, if you so choose, at info at mamabearstudios.com. We would love to hear from you. Yes. Reach out to us, people. We want to hear what you have to say. Teddy, we want to hear from you, obviously. We're always here for Teddy. And... Also, in the future, um, we are going to be getting some T-shirts made. And I want to say, if you rate us or and or write in, we want to hear from you. But if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes and or write in over the next, I'm going to say, four weeks, making the official deadline August 27th, we will put your name in a hat. And then at the end of that four weeks, we're going to draw 10 or 15 names. And if you're one of them, we're going to send you a t-shirt. Are you going to actually put names in an actual hat? I think we should. Why what not? type of hat? What type of hat? A fedora? I don't think. No, not fedora. Not a fedora. You need like an Abe Lincoln type hat. Yeah, I think it could be a real big, tall top hat. But we could also do uh, kind of a shallow vintage style baseball cap. It does sort of depend on how many names we get. We might have to do mm-hmm. it in a yamaka if we only get mm-hmm. like two or three mm-hmm. names. But then we don't really have to draw because we can just automatically give it to all those two or three people. That's so true. And one of those but two I or three people is going to be me. have at least 10 or 12,000 names, right? We're going to have to get a huge hat. We'd love to hear from you. We want to hear good stuff, bad stuff. We want to hear what you love, what you hate, all that. This week, our one message is from my dear sister-in-law, Abby Smallman. Abby lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She says, I want to know from John. John, this is a question for you. Oh, no. What was in the box in New York that your son wanted to look in? The box from, from you remember the box? I do. What was in there? I never told? No. Everyone's oh. on the edge of their seat. Oh, are they? Well, I would love to make up a lie here and say that there was a severed ear or, uh, I don't know, a, an issue of Pro Golfer magazine. But it was so much more mundane than that. Mm. It was... more Wait, more mundane than an issue, an issue of Pro Golfer magazine? Yes, more mundane than a golfing magazine that oh, doesn't boy. exist, if you can believe Maybe we it. we shouldn't tell people what's in there. I don't know if we... Let's keep them hanging. I would love to keep them hanging, but more importantly, now that I've sort of cracked the code a little bit for people, that is to say, no Ooh. severed body parts, I would love to hear what people think was in Ooh, the box. I or like is it possible that, that some other uh, traveler has been in New York in Central Park and seen this very same box? I think it's pretty uh, likely, actually. Hashtag Central Park box. Sweet. All right. Let's, uh, we're going to leave it open one more week. We'll, we'll leave it there. Week. When the mail comes in, and we'll, we'll read it to you, and then I'll tell everybody what actually was in there. We'll see, though, because we want to make sure we got some people actually writing in. And I'm going to be totally transparent with you guys. We have not even – we are still in the process of launching the show. So this could be a pretty small uh, sample size. Wait a minute. <laughs> you told me we had 10,000 listeners before we started. Well, well, we do, but they're mostly theoretical listeners. Bot listeners. They mostly exist in my imagination. Hey, I'll take it. Yeah, me too. I mean, hey, a listener's a listener, whether a they're listener. real or not. <laughs> even if it's a figment. Hey, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. All right, John, uh, let's jump back into whatever it is that we were going to jump back into. So are there – you're a small-time producer, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean John, it as – John, I am a super Hollywood producer, and you know it. You are a big-time producer in my mind. 
say that without the in my mind and you've got my <laughs> love again. You got my endorsement. But you are in the grand scheme of things in Hollywood, you would be on the small independent side of producing. Is that oh, is yeah, that accurate? The, the, oh yeah, for sure. Okay. No, I'm on the smallest end of like working independent producers. Okay. And I I don't know this for sure, but my hunch is that you are a rarity. You meaning a very small independent producer. There aren't a ton of like 20 to 35 year old guys or gals or gals or anything in between going around with the type of freedom and um, just the sort of thing that you've built up, I think is extremely rare. There are guys Mm -hmm. that are probably extremely involved in studios and Mm -hmm. that are producing movies for huge studios and maybe even midsize studios, but there are not a ton Mm -hmm. of freelance producers out there so is that right yeah that's true there are not a ton of them that are making things there's you know there's always a lot of aspirational folks and and they at any point could cross over from putting something together to making something but yeah there aren't a ton um so when you look it's all relative obviously to the size of a normal industry which is the film industry as a whole is quite small. So a small subset of a small industry is going to be a relatively small number of people naturally. That's a great point. So you, you, you're already starting with a pretty small pool, I would imagine, but, or are you looking at big time producers? How does this work? Do you just go on look LinkedIn and type in producer? Uh, no, (laughs) it's, it's usually relation. No, but that's a good question. And I actually get that a lot. Um, a lot of it is people that I've either worked with or, met through friends or through doing festivals with previous movies or reaching out to people and saying, hey, you know, have you worked with anybody you really like? I mean, part of what's really challenging about a movie like this that I think a lot of people don't understand is whether it's actors or whoever, the pay is, is going to be not good. You know, so anyone working on the project who's a working professional is likely taking a pay cut to do it, but they're doing it because they think it's great, whether that's an actor or a casting director or our lawyers or, um, or in this case, the line producer. But part of what is tricky about a project like this is, um, you know, I was saying with casting directors, they can kind of double, triple up on projects a lot more than that, usually uh, going at any given time. Producers have a lot of things usually in development and a lot of things that are sort of at the end of, the process, but you really can't make more than a few movies a year if you're kind of the main producer, because that's, I mean, a few movies a year is, is a lot. I think a lot of us, when we think of producers, think of that person as being the money guy. Hmm. Is that a false notion? Oh, right. Because last week you wanted to know what an executive producer does. I think a lot of people are curious about that, actually. It, It really depends on the, the project. So, there are studio projects that function very, very, very differently than independent projects. And really the difference between a studio project and an independent project is who's making it, meaning who's paying for it and who originated the project. So if it's one, if it's Sony, Fox, Universal, Paramount, or Disney, and maybe I'm forgetting one, but I think those are kind of the big five then it would kind of be considered a studio movie. Pixar would fit into that. You know, all these subsidiaries also fit into that. And a lot of big-time producers have out what are called, you know, output deals or overhead deals. There's different types. 
with each of those studios. And basically what that means is that studio says, hey, you're a proven producer. We want to make your movies. Give us – we get a first look on everything you bring in. You, we pay your salary and some staff and an office on the lot. And in exchange, you have to make your movies with us. With, a, with an independent movie, you sell the right to distribute the movie, which is ultimately the goal for every independent movie is to sell the right to exploit, distribute, show the movie in exchange for money. Is it usually the case that a movie is, sh- is shown at uh, festivals and whatnot before? Or uh, you know, are people making mm-hmm. deals before a film is even created? Well, it depends on the size of the movie and who's in it. And so a movie of this size, we will likely finance the entire movie with equity, which is basically direct ownership in the project, which is its own little company. It's called You make what's called a single-purpose entity, which is basically a miniature production company where it exists purely to be that project. And you sell equity in that movie to raise money. But bigger movies will typically be a combination of equity, some debt, and some you know, other forms like, you know, money that's gotten from foreign pre-sales, tax credit funding, all that kind of stuff. But if it's a bigger movie and you have movie stars, what you do is you say, hey, Tom Cruise is in this indie movie. It's it's going to be a big indie movie, but it still might be an indie. And you go to a, a film market like Cannes or American Film Market in Los Angeles or Toronto, and kind of like a conference, you potentially do a presentation or you set up you know, a booth or there's lots of different ways to do it, and you do lots of meetings and you talk to all these different distributors from around the country, and you say, hey, Tom Cruise is in this, uh, this other director is directing it, and we're shooting it this time, and here's the budget, and it, here's the script, and it's going to be freaking great, and do you want to lock down the right to distribute it in France or do you want to lock down the right to distribute it in all of Asia or whatever, you know, the world is split up into like countries and territories and, and based on certain rights, like there's streaming rights, there's theatrical rights. And sometimes you might sell them all together. Sometimes you might sell them separately, but you might do any of number of those sell ideally a lot of them. And then let's say you sell $50 million worth of pre-sale, foreign pre-sales. You typically try to hold on to domestic. So if it's a studio, they also do a similar process. But like you are selling the right, the future right to distribute the movie once it's done. And they're betting on the fact that it's going to be good so that they can distribute it and make money on it. And then what you do is you take that contract and you go to a bank that specializes in this kind of stuff and you borrow money against the contract. And then you use that money to produce the movie to deliver the product. So it occurs. This is super boring, though, isn't it? I'm abs- kind of I'm boring myself. It's absolutely not boring. It's fascinating, okay. and it occurs to me that in the financial world, there's a thing called a pump and dump. Pump and dump is where mm. you have a piece of crap company, usually like a penny stock, right? Mm-hmm. And you have these brokers go out and sell it as hard as they can, mm. and they'll sell it to people. This thing's going to triple. You got to buy it. It's twenty cents now. It's going to be ten bucks mm-hmm. next month. You know. You go out, you buy like $100,000 worth of it. You have some of the shares yourself, of course. And when this thing goes from 20 cents to two or three bucks, you dump it. Uh, Because it's such a small company that you can actually affect the price pretty easily. Huge. Yeah, huge. With like 10 guys with, you know, 10 or more thousand dollars, you could really move the price of some of these piece of crap penny stocks. And is that legal? That's not legal. Of course not. Of course not. Okay. Okay. To, to uh, security, I mean, it would be securities fraud. There are ways that stocks get pumped and dumped that are legal, but that's for a completely different show. But it occurs to me that there are sitting out in America 
tons of movies that are just languishing that we could pick up for a song. We could buy the rights to some old crappy movie, market it like crazy, resell the rights. What do you say? Well, here's the thing. Anything worth distributing is not going to be cheap. Right, exactly. That's why you find a movie that's a piece of crap that some kid Mm. made 10 years ago. You market it on social media like crazy. This Mm. is the movie that you missed a decade ago. This great film was made. We get the rights for like 150 bucks. Mm. We pump it. We dump it. I think we've got a new business. I think I'm gonna get. I think I'm gonna give up on rollers and 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 only. Well, th- this actually happens a lot in the in the genre space, and this is not a negative. I like horror and thriller movies. Absolutely. And, um, I think they're great, but there is uh, there's a there's a market. I mean, this is the B movie. When you hear B movie, that's the whole concept. Is that they know there is a market for formulaic genre movies that hit certain things have certain types of things in them and they buy them for really cheap they make them for really cheap because no one's trying to win an oscar with this thing and they just deliver it directly to their audience this is of course roger corman the famous b movie director he made like a hundred movies yeah and they're all the you know slasher movies and just exploitation movies Mm-hmm. He was the yeah, king of exactly. it. And he'd make them for like a yep. thousand bucks and then make millions on each one. I mean, that's kind of a version of what Tyler Perry does um, with a, with non-horror movies, obviously, but kind of like family, or not family, but Medea movies, you know, like they make them in, I, I met an editor one time who worked on them and it's crazy. I mean, they make these things in like two weeks. I'm, t- I'm talking like start to finish, whole movie, they shot it, they edit it in a few weeks. It's crazy. But they make like, $70 million at the box office. Yeah, they make tons of money. It's him walking around in a dress playing a stereotype. I mean, it's sort of unbelievable. They don't waste money on the production value, and he's the biggest talent, and he owns the whole production company, so he does it for free up front probably and then just reaps all the benefit. It's it's a great business model. Not great movies, but it's a great business model. But it does hit a sweet spot. It's like not every movie mm-hmm. has to be Citizen Kane or The Godfather. You I can agree. have a movie that's Tyler Perry in a wig and a dress saying, Lordy. For, you know, an hour and a half. Totally. I used to watch the bootleg VHS copies all the time back when they were stage plays. Anyway, yeah, he's a great example of a pretty beastly producer, like the movies or not. Yeah, but say, what does an an executive producer do? Well, it depends on the size of the project, because I kind of got, yeah, I kind of got off on a tangent about, you know, pre-sales and studios and all that kind of crap. Really, it, it really depends on the project, and you can never quite know exactly what someone did just based on their credit. I think everybody pictures when they think an executive producer because of Entourage, the TV show Entourage, Mm. everybody pictures Mm -hmm. a rich young Arab on a yacht who just wants to sleep Mm. with the actresses in a movie. I think that's a real thing. I'm sure it is. No, it it is a real thing. No, they, they really, it really just, uh, it really depends on, on the project. I mean, it's, which is kind of frustrating. I wish there were maybe more because when you're in TV, it's very different, you know, like the the quote unquote showrunner, which is sort of a not a credit, but it is a job on a TV show. They are usually credited as executive producers, and sometimes they created the show, sometimes they didn't. Um, typically, executive producers on indie movies are either bringing financial support to the project, either through investing their own money or finding money. Twenty dollar bills on the street. Yeah, they're like, hey. Mr. Producer, I found a $20 bill. Would that help you make this movie? And they're like, mm, yeah, sure. Be an I'll executive producer. Help us help us find about, you know, 
twenty thousand more of those twenty dollar <laughs> bills, and then you you know you got a job. Or sometimes the value is that and or uh, some sort of recognition, legitimacy mentorships you know sometimes a lot of executive producers will come in and sort of say they're experienced directors or producers and they kind of come in and say hey let me open some doors for you let me sort of help you through this project or sort of be kind of an endorsement of this project and really help introduce you to the kinds of people that you're going to need but yeah i mean that's happened with basically every project that we've done so far hunter gather we had david gordon green and danny mcbride and jody hill who have a company called roughhouse pictures you know they were one of the first people to attach themselves to the project because of a relationship with the director and they've done huge stuff i mean danny mcbride you know eastbound and down and um david green is kind of best known for pineapple express but he's done a ton of other indie stuff and he's really smart um same with Davion, you know, really, really awesome executive producers uh, that came alongside us on all of that. Um, John, what do you have going on this week? It's summer break, baby. We're just getting our lives reorganized. We're getting back on track mm. here. How about you? I'm going to be lounging at the beach. Yeah, I'm going to be lounging at the beach. It's been really rough. We've gotten some excellent waves. It's been very fun. Are you out there boogie boarding, riding waves? Little, yeah, a little boogie board and a little body surfing. My favorite is the skimboard. Oh, Paul's a big, my brother's a big skimboarder. Yeah, it's the it's the gentleman's beach activity. You don't get soaking wet. You don't get soaking wet if you're good at it. I, I get pretty soaking wet when I skimboard because I'm awful. Yeah, injuries abound with skimboard. That's true. If you're a novice. Which I am. But really, my favorite is when the wave just picks you up and crumples you into a tiny little ball and just slams you face first into the sand. Somebody needs to start a business where they have a child rental business. Mm. Let's say like a 25 to 30-year-old dude and his lady friend are thinking, you know what, we we should have a kid. This company mm-hmm. would come and give you a kid for like an hour, and you have to mm. take this kid out. He's like, take me in the ocean, take me in the ocean. So you take the kid in the ocean, and he can't really swim because it's not a pool. Mm-hmm. Basically has to stand there and just get rocked by waves. And you have to protect him and make it fun and make sure you don't die. Mm. I think about 12 minutes Mm. of that would scare any prospective father straight. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying, dude. Sounds terrifying and like a massive uh, liability issue. All right, sweet. Well, uh, John, it's been great. And I guess we'll talk next week. We will indeed. It's been a blast. All right. Talk soon, bye. See ya. Bye. Thanks for tuning in for episode four of I Guess We'll Do It That Way. Join us later this week when we talk about Billy Wilder's classic film, Ace in the Hole. Today's show was produced and edited by Isaiah Smallman. Executive producer, me, Lil Johnny Bear. Intro music is The Get Down by Summer Dregs. Outro music is The Man From Nowhere by Tom Paulus and Max Bells. Our cover art was designed by Nate Giordano. This has been a production of Mama Bear Studios. Feeling the heat of the desert It's your boy!